Hello and welcome to the SRF podcast. I'm Ollie and I'm Ben. If you're watching on YouTube, please remember to like the video, subscribe to the channel, and let us know in the comments what guest you'd like to see on the podcast next. Or if you're listening to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please leave us a five star review. It really does help us out. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the SRF podcast. I'm Ollie Ballinger and with me is co-host Ben Williamson. Ben, how are you, mate? Hi, mate. Uh, yeah, I'm okay today. Yeah, living my best life. Thank you. I was told to say, so I'm good. You? Yeah, very well. Thank you. Looking good in orange as always. Mate, I love it. I love the orange hoodie. Let's welcome our next guest to the uh, to the podcast. Nathan, welcome. Delighted to have you with us. Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to join you both and, and to see you both again, actually. And you, mate, and you. Although it's been a- I'm already not on your side with the orange hoodie thing. It's been a, it's been a while, Nathan, for sure. So why don't you tell uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? So I'm Nathan Sherrod. I'm the managing director of the third team, um, and the predominant focus of the third team is to work with referees on resilience, mental toughness, and mental well-being. Um, and I'm now doing a lot more work in neurodiversity as well. I'm a big um, passionate supporter of, 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 of neurodiversity in sports um, as I'm on the autistic spectrum myself. And I know that's something we're going to talk about uh, hopefully in, the, in this podcast, but that's another big, big part of the work that we've started to do now as well. So let's have a, a little chat around the third team. What, tell us, go into a little bit more depth. What, what, what is it you do on a daily basis with your, your customers? What, why did you start it? Why? why, why? Tell us why. I think... I started the third team because I wanted to fill a gap that I'd had in my own active career. So I was refereeing under 18's game uh, one Sunday morning. There was nothing really in the game. It was, uh, I think, nine goals to one, something like that. And uh, there was a, I was blocked and there was a big shout goes up when I became unblocked and had a clear view. I could see that um, there was a, a player ready to headbutt another player and he did duly headbutt him and then he, he followed up with a, with a left hook and this left the player on the floor having a fit um, and I was left with a bit of a decision as to um, kind of what do I do, do I go towards the player who's the perpetrator or do I go towards the victim? Well, a lot of parent spectators came on to the field of play and, and went straight to the, uh, to the victim so I decided to go to the perpetrator and to uh, to send him off, although you know, prison sentence might have been more fitting. I think um, <laughs> it sounds extreme yeah. for, for under eighteen Sunday morning. Yeah, so I think that you know, it was one of them things where the police came and there was forensics and all sorts. It was an unbelievable situation. Um, and I went to the police station and gave you know a statement, which was probably not dissimilar to what I put in my match report. Next day, Monday morning, I went to work. The job I was in at the time, I just couldn't stop thinking about it. Intrusive thoughts, flashbacks, really unpleasant um, experience. I actually left my job that day. Now it was completely unrelated. Okay. Wow. That was a buildup of something else. But when it all happens at once, I, I, it got me thinking, right, okay, what can I do here? How can I, um, you know, sort of turn, turn what has happened to me into a career? Because what had happened was, you know, not uh being able to access support from my audio because he was on holiday and the i wasn't as well connected as i am now you know absolutely not yeah, so yeah. very much uh, a lone ranger picking up games here and there existing within my own bubble i wasn't uh you know i didn't network with other referees i didn't wasn't an RA member i didn't do anything like that and i just realized that really for me one of the key things that that I'd realized was that, yeah, okay, you've got sort of the charities and, and things that can offer support, like Ref Support UK and things like that. But what is not there is how can we be proactive with referees? How can we arm them? How can we, you know, get them into a position where they're ready and, and, and feeling good? So I um, sort of started to get to work on 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 building um, a business that, that could do that. And obviously the natural... Um, sort of focus for it was to build in sort of almost sports psychology type support for people. And that's what I've kind of done. Uh, initially I was doing it with groups and then COVID came and it was very difficult. So I had to, I had to change the, the, the business because it was only nine months uh, old at the time. And then, you know, working with groups, 
and then I was expanding beyond football and then I expanded into to working with individuals and that's largely where the bulk of the business comes now is is through working with individuals of all levels you know from newly qualified to professional level referees I've I've worked with I've worked with them all so it's it's been a really really good and really really useful um sort of bit for, for, for me and, uh, I mean oh, sorry mate no, no, no. I mean, it's really interesting. What I want to know is, was building out the third team your medicine to that incident? Um, I don't think so. I don't think so. I, I, I think that um, it was a real card in the bin moment, if I'm being honest, for me. And, and luckily, I think, I think the probably the only cards in the bin moment that I've had in my refereeing career. So I'm lucky in that respect. Uh, but I think what's important is that, like other referees who've had cards in the bin moment, is that I did go back through the bin two or three days later and I was ready to go again. Yeah, and I, did, yeah I didn't I did naturally heal. But um, I think think that what it was was it was a it was a looking at a gap. I think the FA, County FA, everybody is really, really good at delivering technical referee and support. But I think psychological refereeing support's been something that's been missing for, for quite a while. And it comes from different areas, you know, it comes from academia, it comes from different places. But I, I felt that with my experience of being an active official, um, that it, it was something that, that would, would definitely be the right thing to do for me. How long, how long had you been active official before that happened? I don't, how well, long you'd been refereeing? I think it would have been about, Four years. Um, when I before I went to university, I didn't really take refereeing as seriously as I do now. Um, in terms of, I've, le- I've learned a lot, um, and I've become a lot more aware of other officials and everything that's going on in officiating now. And I'm, you know, I'm well connected with it, with other officials through the RA, through various other different bits and pieces of, of, of stuff that I do. So I'm, I'm, I'm aware of all of that now. Before that incident really, I, it was, I was still not in that place and I was very much refereeing on my own, um, never, had never been an assistant referee on any games, um, never done anything, just doing youth football all the time, and probably didn't really know how to referee properly. Um, so, yeah, we were yeah. saying on a previous podcast that, it takes like a couple of years. Like no, no one starts off as a good referee, right? It takes yeah. three, four, maybe even longer years to like master your trade or be comfortable, or, like be consistently being able to referee a game of football. So, if you're saying this this happened in your first three or four years, like it, it's probably fair to say that it we we don't really have the skill set to be able to to manage that, manage that scenario, manage everyone's expectations. How old were you at the time? Uh, probably 19 or, or so. So I was a little bit older than probably what a, a lot of referees. I started at 16 and, um, you know, but, but I did very much get the feeling that had it been a, a 14 or 15 year old newly qualified official, then that could have been, you know, it's a huge problem, right? Yeah. yeah. End of the career. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's really interesting because, um, I mean, I'm probably more of a closed book than I am an open book. You know, and I, fortunately, I don't think I've had a cards in the bin moment, but I've definitely had those thoughts around, am I enjoying what I'm doing? You know, because you come off game sometimes and you go, okay, it was a dead rubber game. There was nothing on it. And maybe I was an assistant referee at the time. I did my job, but because the game didn't provide that level of excitement or the competitiveness, I went out there, put my flag up a few times and, you know, I walked away and was like, I mean, that was okay, but, you know, there's a point, certainly as you get older in life, where you go, you know, and am I getting from this what, what I want, you know, because we don't referee for the money, you know, the, it's a nice bit of pocket money to cover the expenses, but um, it's in moments like those where you feel very closed off, I think, from the world, and it's like it wouldn't do you any harm to talk about that feeling but I think naturally and I speak for myself here that's quite hard you know that's quite hard to just go hey this is how I feel you know and I guess it's 
difficult because you put yourself in a place of vulnerability. Yeah. And how do you how do you trust the person that you're sharing it with isn't gonna, you know, come and bite you on the backside with it, you know? Yeah. I think it's interesting though, because obviously uh Ben and Ollie we both involved in the professional game, um, respectively. And what I find is that the clients I've worked with, um, in, you know, particularly in a one-to-one capacity, I find that they are the most difficult people to actually access. How can I help you equally? So to trying to find out, you know, you give me a vague reason of why you kind of come to work with me, but what can I really do? How can I add value? What can, how can I make a difference to... To, to your career so that you find less weight in your thoughts around certain areas of what you're doing. And so I think that that's something that I find with the higher level operators that I've worked with, particularly those in the professional game, how, how, how can I help you? Because they have had such an elite mentality, so switched on, so focused, haven't given nothing away to nobody, been in a competitive environment to get promotions, maybe only three or four officials getting promotions. And all of a sudden, I'm asking you to actually come and be slightly vulnerable with me to tell me what 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 are you worried about? How can I help you? How can I support you? What what do you really want to work on? And sometimes it's hard for them to give me a pinpoint direct answer. We'll go around the houses, but eventually they'll open up and we'll see what we're trying to do and we'll work together. And I think that, you know, it doesn't surprise me that, you know, you talk about yourself that way because you've been successful in refereeing. And that's part of, I think, what kind of is involved in that process. What's really interesting, something you just said, was the weight, right, that you carry around. And I think it's so subconscious that I I think it's really difficult to see through the fact that you're carrying, I don't know, brain fog or, or whatever it is, right? But I reckon that will have an impact on one's ability to officiate because you need to have a clear mind and you get split second to make a decision. And I think, I think it's really easy to sit there and go, I need to be fit. I need to know the laws. I need to make sure my admin's good. But I think that element of the mental clarity and that feeling of got a, got a free head. I think it's because it's difficult to measure, right? Like, how on earth do you measure that? And how on earth do you have this feeling that you're going, actually, I'm in a really good place? Yeah. And I think that that's something that, you know, there's a couple of things that I work on with, with officials. So things like visualisation, uh, things like grounding techniques that they can employ when they arrive at the, at the stadium or the ground that they're officiating at, um, you know, sort of a bit mindfulness activity and things like that. They are things that, you know, when you talk about the weight and you talk about the pressure and having a clear head, those are the things that I try to put into them to mitigate some of that weight of feeling when they arrive at the ground. And that's something that, you know, it takes time to build those routines and to get used to doing that on a regular basis. But that's where we've seen some really, really positive results with, with the clients. This might be a really silly question, but do you think... There's actually that much of a difference between like the weight that a 14, 15, 16 year old referee carries to an elite referee. If we take out the money involved in the game, if that wasn't a thing, and actually you're refereeing in front of 20 people and a few parents and a dog at the park and 55,000 in a stadium, take those things out. Does the pressure or or does the does the pressure of refereeing change because if we've all got that inability or that own desire just to be the best get all our decisions right and we all put that pressure on ourselves it doesn't matter what level of the game you're refereeing at does it does that make a difference do you think and and is there different techniques that a grassroots referee should do to an elite referee or are we saying that there's some real good similarities that we we could employ across the officiating landscape there are absolutely similarities and a lot of the fundamentals are the same, but I think you can probably attest to this, Ben. You know, it probably is maybe slightly different in, in terms of the actual position that you occupy when you're involved in a game. But I, what I would say is when you go from the, the, the um, grassroots level with the parents to then being in a stadium, a lot of officials report well it's just a, a wall of noise at the top end whereas i can hear every shout at the bottom end 
but I actually think that every, and you'll hear loads of people say this, I don't think I'm, I'm reinventing the wheel by saying this, but I think when you're in front of a group of 40 people at a field in your local park, but every single one of them thinks that their child on the pitch is the next Lionel Messi, Cristiano Ronaldo, Diego Maradona, okay? I think that's probably just as difficult because when you flag their kid who's running through on goal offside or whatever it might be, you're then killing a dream and somebody's not going to be happy with that, you know? But equally, the pressure comes from, you know, refereeing at the top ground or international level like, like you do, Ollie. In that moment, you're then saying, well, it's the hopes of a nation, you know, and you feel that. Mm-hmm. So I just think that there's always the pressure and in isolation, it feels probably just as big to everybody because you, you're close, closer to it in certain areas than others. Yeah, I know. I think that's really fair. One question that's going to link into this uh, this pressure thing, and it it's out again something we talked about fairly recently on a different podcast. So your take on this would be would be great. Why do you think referees put so much pressure on themselves around fitness test time? Because I hate it. I know I can pass the fitness test. I know I don't need to do too much leading up to it to pass it because my general level of fitness is great. Yeah. As we already know, my body fat is far too high, but general level of fitness is fine. Like, why do we put so much pressure on ourselves leading up to that one fitness test or that two or three fitness tests every year? I think it's because for the rest of the season, a lot of officials train completely differently to the way that they'll suddenly start to train for the test. And I think that that's why they, they start to panic because they're doing things that are not within their usual routine. So I think... Look, you have to make changes when you come through the levels. There's no doubt about that. But um, I think with a lot of officials, they have a, 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 a rudimentary, a rough routine that, 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 you know, sort of does everything for them and gets them to where they need to be ready for matches. And I think when they make slight alterations, which I know a lot of referees do in terms of changing the way they train in probably from, from probably the last game of the season until the fitness test, whether they do it in June or July or August, they're not training the way that they normally train. They're not doing the things that they normally do. And I think that causes a lot of anxiety because they're actually away from their usual routines in the rest of the year. So you spoke about um, some of the successes that you've had with your with your one-to-ones and that being a more um, a more predominant thing. Do you see any of that correlating to retention of sports officials? Well, I think... A little bit more with the groups, to be quite honest with you, okay. is is something that we do. So when I work with, um, you know, county football associations or uh, national football associations uh, outside of the UK, um, a big part of what I do for them is to help them with the retention. Um, and you know, it's not just football associations; it's other other types of things. But we're looking at, at trying to you know work with people in in groups and and, and work with groups of referees because. Sometimes I'll get referees that will actually, so, uh, sorry, so I'll get referee managers that will say, I'm a bit worried about my referees. You know, we've dropped for the last two years. Um, I'm not getting as many referees promoted as I would like. All of those KPIs for the referee managers in their jobs, they're almost saying, can, can you help me basically achieve my KPIs? But in reality, it's that some of the referees don't know how they want to progress, don't know how... They feel maybe sometimes comfortable in the in the in the level that they're at on and refereeing type football that they're refereeing, um, and 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 so it can be can be a real challenge. But what I've also had probably, uh, you know, as an aside, you talk about the one to one stuff. I, I have had I can think of one referee, a US referee uh, that I work with, based in uh, Chicago, and she literally came to me and said, "Look, I'm I'm ready to." Um, I want to. I want to work with you. It's me one last shot, um, and I'm ready to pack up. And that uh, that official now is officiating in the uh, ML, I think it's MLS Next or whatever the, the competition is okay. at the bottom. So you know, to actually go from I'm ready to give it all up to being on the fringes of the the professional level in the US is something that that's one of my real probably biggest successes because it was one of my first clients that I had in a one-to-one sense that then 
we've had a good level of time to measure the success with. So I think with with her, she loves it. She's so motivated. She gets frustrated when she doesn't get um, appointed now to to games when she's missing rounds of fixtures and things like that. She, you know, when we have, we had a session earlier this week and she's saying to me, "I want more middles." Um, you know, I'm, I'm getting sick of being a fourth and all of this. You know, and so we've got to a point where. If she can't get enough and she was ready to, to pack it all in. So I think um I, I think that you know things like that are a really good measure of success. But but what I've also had is situations where I've uh, worked with officials who've said, Oh yeah, I remember when you came to 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 talk to our group of referees. Um so I'm in Durham and I work sometimes with North Riding officials and I did one of the first workshops I ever did was for who core groups. Uh, in North Riding FA, and um, I uh, I've worked with a couple of guys where they've said, "Hey, I'm really glad you're on my line because I remember you talking to me about uh, you know some of the stuff we could do." So, um, and and it's been really helpful. So I think that um, you know it's always nice to see things like that and to be able to see the progress. But I think um, we've definitely helped with retention. We've had some really good feedback. So I think that's that has definitely. Must be a really proud moment now, yeah, Nathan. I mean, yeah, that's awesome it. to just like keep a referee in the game. Yeah, yeah. You know, no matter the sport, right? Or no matter the ge- geographical location either. Yeah. Absolutely. To keep another referee refereeing is um is great. What do you find is the reason like why people are ready to put their cards in the bin? Is it a magnitude of like bad experiences or is there like a predominant element? that is putting people off referee? I think it's not feeling supported enough, not feeling as if um, they don't, they have the, 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 it's certainly, I would say the most overwhelming, overarching topic you could put it under is a lack of confidence. Um, and I think that, but it's, it's not feeling supported, it's feeling unsure about whether you, what you're doing is working for you and is right for you. Um, and I think that for me, that's what it's. That's what it's kind of uh, boiling down to more often than not. I think. Okay, and if you was to turn around to someone and go, "Hey, I think you're doing good," or "I think you've done okay," or "I think you're doing excellent," after a game, do you think that is a contributing factor to support, or do you think that is a vain metric that actually doesn't help? I think you need to find somewhere in between sort of saying that but also then slightly reinforcing it with a, a couple of things that you think they might have done well because then that it means that they'll take heart from that, give them confidence from that and it means that they'll want to try and do it again in games. So what I think about is my role as a, as a, as a county FA uh, mentor. So when I go and watch a referee, I, you know, I probably um, slightly overstep the mark in terms of what the FA actually wants. But what I like to do is actually point things out to them that I think they've done. Normally, it's a, it's more of a well-being role of how you know how you feel, how, you know, can I help you in any way, all that. But I actually like to say that I really thought that was a good advantage, or you know, I thought you did a really good job of managing that free kick, or whatever it might be, just to give them something where they think, right, I've done that and I've done that well. So if I if I do that again, because a lot of these referees that I'm I'm I'm, I'm mentoring are refereeing their very first games in football. So they yeah. need something tangible to hang their hat on, I think, you know, where they're actually good part of the, the refereeing. I think it's really interesting as well, right? Because I went, I think people like to share feedback and people like to share their input, whether, and we see that in a negative fashion, like TV and people shouting their opinions at referees. But I also I believe that the younger grassroots, lower level kind of football Managers do actually want to help. Well, yes, they're passionate, and yes, sometimes they overstep the boundaries and things like that, which isn't great. But la- I'll give you an example. Last weekend, I went and refereed. I didn't get a game in the National League. Um, so I went out and did some youth football, which I-, I don't generally do, but I wanted to help out, and I thought, I've got a Sunday free, so I'll go and do some games. Went and refereed a, a game, uh, Sunday afternoon, under-16s game. I turned up, did the game, didn't tell anybody that, that I don't normally referee this level, anything like that. I just turned up, hi, Ben, referee, let's get on with it. Sent off a player for violent conduct, a bizarre incident. Um, he got rounded by an attacker. Um, and as he's trotting back to the goal, um, into his goal line, he just clotheslines his player. Horrendous. Like, it was out of nowhere. Sent him off, got on with it. 
didn't really think too much. The away manager or the players manager that I sent off obviously wasn't thrilled with him, but said, you had nothing else you could do, ref. Gave me some of his pointers, no problem. Got home, forgot about it, had a bath, had a lovely evening. Then I got a text. Had a bath? I had a bath, mate, yeah. That's what you do after it's a game. like a 1980s footballer. He, he, <laughs> he likes to have a bath. And when he's in the National League, he likes to get the fourth official, the referee and the other assistant all in there like a like an FA Cup 80s photograph. Well, yeah, we all jump on a FaceTime <laughs> and talk about the game in the bath. No, we don't do that. We don't do that. But I checked my phone and I, um, I had a text from the manager, right? And I'll actually, I'll get it and I'll read it to you because it was it was fascinating that he wanted to share that opinion, I think. Um, so he sent a message and just said... Um, Thanks for, thanks for your time today. You're one of the best referees we've had in the league. Um, thanks so much. I thought you handled the difficult situation really well. And I've, said, I've not gone poking. I've not asked him for any advice, not asked for any feedback. But the fact that he'd like got home after the game, thought about it, he must have had a million other ones, other things yeah. to do. But it's that his way of of trying to share some good feedback, but keep keep a referee in the game because he doesn't know how that's affected me or if I'm if I'm now having some challenges around do I want to be involved in this or did I do the right thing or whatever because I've turned up referee the game and gone home. Yeah. So I just think that's really nice that he's wanted to do his bit mm-hmm. to go. You were, you were good today. Yeah. I think that's really nice. I think do does that happen enough in sport? to help referees because to to me yeah fine it was nice it, it's not going to change the world for me whether I go out and, and do my National League game or my PL2 game Tuesday night it, just, it doesn't make a difference to me maybe because I'm resilient I've done this 16 years but to another referee who's 17, 18 and turned up and has the same incident that has to be really nice to get that text to get that feedback to get that message should should we do more of it do you think? Well I definitely think it should be you know, we've talked about the respect campaign and, and all of those things. Is there a is there a, an incentive for, for 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 managers to be complimentary to referees? Because I think most of the time, any feedback that does come to referees is is the exact opposite. And the question yeah. I've got for you, Ben, though, here, I'm going to turn interviewer on this podcast. No, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> Did you find it difficult not to talk while the game was played? Because I spoke to a championship referee not so long ago who did a grassroots game on a weekend off and he was finding it incredibly difficult not to basically commentate on the game as if he had a comms kit on and was talking to colleagues. Uh, did I find that difficult? Probably not because I probably did it. Right. I, I, I haven't thought about it, but I think because of like, because that's what I do, I talk through the game. Yeah. We have the comms kits. I, yeah. We do that. Um, if there's no foul, I'll quietly say clear, good. Yeah whatever um no i don't think i changed too much of what i've done in the national league to what i would have to what i did sunday afternoon because i know i would have talked to myself i mean i can relate to that nathan like when i don't have comms i all of a sudden feel naked right well only because i've like all of a sudden got used to it yeah okay no i understand that so like when i now don't have it yeah You've got to consider it as the way you approach your game. Yeah. It definitely, there is definitely a clear yeah. contrast between having it and not having yeah. it. And I think that's the, probably the same though, is like if you're week in, week out refereeing top level stuff, and then you go and do a local level grassroots game, yeah. like you're expecting, like we, we deliver a standard to this week in, week out, mm-hmm. right? And the, the game might be slower. They yeah. might not be as technically skilled. We're all there because we love the game, right? Mm-hmm. So it, w- it will always feel different. Yeah. Won't it? Pre-season, this, 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 just this pre-season gone, I, I worked with two PGML referees um, and we used comms. And one of the games I was AR1 and one of the games I was AR2. And I really, really struggled in the game I was AR1 because, uh, because of my autism, I couldn't focus on two conversations at once. So when the dugout was saying, we want, there was no fourth official, we want when 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 the when the when they were saying we want to substitute, I was ignoring them. I, I just didn't hear it because all I could hear was the comms. It wasn't a, so much of a problem when I was AR two, but if I ever got to the level of U two, I would have to constantly not be on dugouts. Otherwise, I would never be able to perform the duties of a 
of a, of a senior assistant because I can't hear two things at once. And I, that was something, that's a problem I've never had to have and never will have, you know, in the next couple of seasons. But it's something that it made me realise it's actually quite a difficult job for neurodiverse officials when the comms, because you're all right if you're on your own and you just need to talk to the referee and the other assistant. But when you need to communicate with people who are not wearing comms kits, basically, so club officials, it's a massive problem. Tell us, tell us more about this neurodiversity that you're doing, Nathan. So I am autistic and, you know, a lot of people know a lot about autism. A lot of people will not know about autism, but might have seen the film Rain Man. Um, and it's not really anything like that in reality. It's not, it's not like people who just recall information off the cuff. It's, it's, there is, there is, you know, that certainly is a massive part of it and, and having a really good memory, especially photographic memory is, um, is something that, that it can be there, but a lot of people think about, uh, nonverbal people who are in sensory rooms, don't have the ability to live normal lives. Um, but so that, that from my side about autism, that, that's what it is. Um, but I'm, I'm also a coach um, in terms of coaching indiv- neurodiverse individuals in business and in, 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 in their day to day jobs. So, you know, one of the, my clients recently has, has been a, a critical care consultant in a, um, in a, you know, an award in London where there's been major trauma, major trauma center. So he's dyslexic, for example. So I'm working with a lot of different people as well in, in the coaching away from sport um, in, in that regard and, and trying to help him to pass exams that he's got professional exams that he's got. So it's a big part of, of what I do. Um, I'm also a trustee for, for Daisy Chain, which is an autism charity in the northeast of England. Um, and does a lot of work with with people of all ages. It, it started out as a family respite centre for, for people with, with autistic children. And it's now evolved to providing beneficiaries services from, you know, I think one of our oldest beneficiaries is in the sixties, you know, some of the youngest are under the age of five. So, you know, very much uh, a, a very broad spectrum, ironically, um, that, uh, that, that, that we, we cover in that charity. Um, and I'm the first trustee to be on the spectrum. So being able to advocate for the beneficiaries at board level is one of the kind of real privileges I've got of, of being able to, to be a part of the organisation. So yeah. how did you get into that role, Nave? How, uh, what made you want to go, do you know what? I, I, that I, it's really clear, right, that you, you, you are just a helper. You really want to help people and, and you do really well at it, which is fantastic. So what made you want to make that next steps to go actually to get involved in the charity or to, yeah. to sit on the board? Because that's a, a, a big responsibility. So what... What drove you to want to do that? It is a big responsibility, and it's probably a responsibility that I didn't appreciate the um, the size of that uh, responsibility before I started. Um, and I think what I wanted to do was I wanted to play a part, and I wanted to um, really kind of uh, just just make a difference and be able to actually sort of help and, and advise and give that support to people and, and to be able to bring a different perspective to the board as well. Um, I'm also the youngest by quite a distance on the, on the board. So I think being able to bring the perspective of a young person with me is something that um, I, 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 can, I can really help because I'm a lot closer in the age to the bulk of our beneficiaries. Um, you know, like I said, we have got a few that are a little bit older, but the bulk are in their sort of teens and twenties and things like that. And I have a lot of experience of transitioning from school to sixth form to university and then into self-employment. So I think trying to use all those different bits and pieces are the bits that, um, you know, we've really kind of, I've been able to bring to it and, and, and. I'm really, really enjoying the role. And, and like you say, for me, it's, it's a real pleasure to be able to support the charity and to try and help it because um, ultimately, I, I suppose to an extent, I'm, I'm one of the lucky ones that I'm quite high functioning as an autistic person. And I do have the ability to advocate for, for others who are on the spectrum. But, um, you know, I think unfortunately, it's been one of the things that, um, you know, I, I haven't been able to, 
get involved in anything else previously, but now I'm very fortunate to be able to be on the board at, at Daisy Chain. Yeah, I think that's amazing. And it's so cool that you can you can bring so many different perspectives with you because of uh, your younger age being on the spectrum yourself. I think that's really, really cool. And I just wonder why, like, if we look at other clubs, other organizations, generally board of directors, that they, they all seem to be older in age generally. Why, why is there not enough positions for younger people or people with different experiences to get into these roles? Because you, you you must bring to the Daisy Chain board something totally different to the rest of the trustees, I, I would assume. And I think that's probably then relatable across the FA, across the county FA networks, across club levels, across competitions. You don't generally see that the, the people that the decisions are being made about on, on those boards helping make those decisions, right? Like, why is that? Well, you know, I, I can't tell you why it is, but what I can tell you is that, you know, for me, I'm mixed race as well as neurodiverse. So I think you don't see enough mixed race people involved in, in board level decisions and things like that. I think that that's something that's sadly lacking. Um, but what I do also feel is that, you know, um, I have seen it, it can be quite intimidating. And I think, you know, we've talked a lot about the resilience stuff that I do with referees and stuff like that. I think I'm quite a resilient person overall. So I think I have almost a slightly bullish uh, approach to the way that I, that I take things. And um, I'm not, and, and it's probably a little bit through refereeing as well. So we all know as referees, we make unpopular decisions yeah, on the field of play. And... Um, we have to not care what people think about that penalty we've just given or, or the decision to send that player off. And I think part of that does come into come into it at, at uh, you know at board level because I think a lot of young people are intimidated by a lot of the typically older, whiter faces. And and this is like, you know, we talk about diversity in referee and everybody has got a perception of referees of bald white men. So that's something that has to be challenged and broken down. But I think what we're talking about in, in, in terms of the board level of, of all these organisations, the FA, Daisy Chain, whoever it might be, is there's a lot of intimidation, a lot of people feeling that they don't get to have a voice for because they've always been told that they're not there or they've never been able to see. You know, One of the big um, phrases that I've seen come from the real explosion of, of women's football since the uh, Euros uh, last summer is if you can see it, you can be it. And I think that people haven't seen enough board members their own age or, or their own race or their own sex or their own, you know, are neurodiverse like them, you know? So I think it's about showing people that it can be there, but it's also about, you know, when you actually get into these meetings and you, you're sitting around the board and you're having your board meeting, it's about not worrying, sitting there thinking, if I give an opinion here, is everybody going to think I'm a bit of a knob? You, you, you've just got to think, right, I'm actually going to give me opinion. That's my opinion. If everybody else disagrees, then so be it. Uh, so but I, I put my opinion across, and, and that's what I fundamentally believe, given my experiences of, of what we're talking about. One of the questions I was uh, going to ask, Nathan, was how do you know if you're autistic? And then follow that up with what do you do if you know that you are and you want to seek support? Because I think there for me are the two challenges, right? Yeah, so I think um, you, you don't always necessarily know. And I think that's why we have to try and give um, some uh, education to what a lot of autistic traits are so that people can be more aware. And it's not just traits of autism that, every, that everybody needs to be more aware of. It, it's It's, traits of ADHD, it's traits of dyslexia, it's traits of dyscalculia, it's all forms of neurodiversity. There needs to be more awareness of, um, particularly because when I think back to when I was at school, autism was used as a stick to beat people with. So everybody would, would sort of try and bully kids by saying, oh, you're autistic, without really knowing any meaning or any having substance behind it at all. So I think it's actually about knowing what it really is um, because many, many, many autistic individuals will live happy, fulfilled lives, will be married, will have children, will have a mortgage, will drive a car, all of those things, um, but will need certain support with certain aspects of their life and may struggle with other things. And so, you know, you would be looking with things like resistance to change, 
difficulty in um, sequencing tasks in, in, in daily life. And sometimes there can be difficulties with coordination, which is which is one of the reasons why refereeing is the only real involvement I, I'm able to have in football, and um, because I have a lot of problems with my coordination. So for me, trying to kick a ball, you know, is just a non-starter. So I think that you know that that's why. So it's actually about having those adaptations and realizing what you're good at. In terms of if you think that you may be neurodiverse, it. You know, there unfortunately there are, depending on where you live, there are a lot of long waiting lists for diagnosis at the moment, and getting support from perhaps your local NHS trust or whatever it might be. So, what I would encourage you to do while you're on that waiting list is to engage with charities like Daisy Chain or whatever your local neurodiversity charity is, in order to get some support around, um, you know, how it might impact you, what's what what um you know accommodations you might need, how you might get you know, basically get the best out of yourself, whatever stage of life you're in, whether you work in the workplace and you need accommodations such as uh, you need to work in a room that doesn't have a certain level of light because that can affect you from a sensory perspective. Is there a certain temperature because it can affect you uh, from a sensory perspective? You need to move your desk away from the door where all the visitors and all the staff come in because that can be really difficult. Um, you know, things like that. Or whether you're at school and you need extra time in exams, um, there's a lot of different things that you can need at different stages of your life to to help um, have accommodations for some of the uh, neurodiverse traits that you have. I want to just wrap that up into and meet that into something that might help me personally from a uh, a developer's course because what I'm seeing. Um, through delivering referee courses that there's a lot of a lot more neurodiverse young people coming through the courses which I think is fantastic is there is there a couple of things that we as tutors and developers could probably think about better because I know recently on a, a training course we had some input which w- was really helpful yeah. um, maybe there could be some more so is there a couple of things from your personal point of view that just some really small things that we could do to help and uh, like just delivering the referees course and is it right to go go and ask that young person like over the next two you're gonna be with me for a day and a half two days whatever the makeup of the course mm-hmm. looks like what, what do you need from me how can i help you understand it better how can i deliver it better do we like is that okay to ask that question well i think so because it shows that you want to help them and you want to make the reasonable adjustments that they need to maximize the value of the course you're delivering so i think that actually one of the key things that, that you can probably do is to, you know, overwhelm is a big challenge in, in, in many forms of neurodiversity. So I think that one of the things that you absolutely can do is to, if you're going to hand out 10 pieces of paper over one day of the course, you might want to slow down that. You might want to look and down your list on Monday if you're delivering a course on Saturday and say, right, I've got three. Uh, you know, autistic uh, referee candidates on this course this week. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start feeding them some information on Tuesday, and then I'm going to send them another one on Wednesday, another one on Thursday. So they've had more time to digest the information before they turn up, and and you're not overwhelming them by slapping down ten sides of A4 in front of them and then saying this is what's happening, um, because it can be too much to take in. I think you know, for example, if you have a dyslexic uh, referee candidate on the course. One of the things you might want to do is provide them with a highlighter to highlight some of the, the the stuff that they want to do, or you might want to give them an extra piece of paper so that they can cover and just read line by line. So things like that can make a massive difference um, to to just the sort of the the, the basics of of the, of the basic referees course, which has changed a lot since I did it. I know that, so I I don't know. I can't profess to know how it works in inside and outside, but certainly I know that. You know, little things like that where they're going at a longer pace and not overwhelmed will massively help them take on board the information that, that they need so they can be successful when they when they go out there and do their first five games. Yeah, I love that. I think that's really cool. Thank you. That was a really selfish question and hopefully that helps somebody else. But yeah, I think that's well, really cool. Help everybody who listens, yeah. I, yeah. I think we could talk about this for, for hours, Nathan. I think some of the work that you're doing is incredible. I mean, just some of the sports psychology work is 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 really interesting and it doesn't have to make you think like like personally as a referee because i think we all want to do everything a bit better you know and as i said at the start you know you can always do your nutrition and your fitness and your 
laws and you're reviewing clips and your decision making. But like you know, the psychology I think is is often forgotten. But it's definitely growing, you know. So it's definitely made me think. And then what you're doing with the with the neurodiversity, I think is is awesome. And I think the more that we can talk about that and and make that transparent for everybody and just enhance everyone's knowledge that little bit more, I think is the way. Um, I think it's the way it should be. So please don't stop. Keep going. Um, the question for the third team is: What does your plans look like for the future? Where are you going? What do you want to do? I, I want to. I want to keep working with as many different referees as possible. One of the best things about my job is, you know, I'm, I'm sitting talking to you from in front of my laptop now, um, and. The, one of the best things that I, I, I can say about the job is that I can be in Australia in the morning and, and in the US in the evening and, and <laughs> pass through Europe in, through the middle of the day. And um, I, I love that. I love that. It's brilliant. It's, um, it's, it's one of the best parts of the job. And so that's why for me, I want to keep working in different countries. I want to keep working with different people. What I love as well is, I've, you know, I've worked with lacrosse officials. I've worked with cricket umpires, tennis umpires, you know, every new sport in, in November I'm going up to um, to Scotland to address uh, the panel of rugby uh, referees up there um, in Edinburgh and what I love is to learn about other people's sports to learn about how they officiate I've been watching the, the Rugby World Cup at the moment and, and watching how and, and by the way I love the uh, yes ref posts about the, uh, the rugby officials I think it's brilliant and I would urge everybody to have a look at that but also what I really, really love about it is I love watching how other officials communicate with each other in other sports, how they work, how they deliver. And so for me, that's one of the best parts of the job as well. So I want to keep working with different sports. I want to keep working with different officials from different countries, learning from them. It's, as much, it's, it's almost as if I'm supporting them, but I'm also getting a free lot of information that <laughs> yeah, yeah. how I'm going to do things better myself. So you learn from everybody who's a client, you learn from everybody you meet. And so I just want to keep doing that and having a wonderful experience and hopefully do it on a, on a grander scale because, uh, you know, it is a business for me and it's, it's a business that I want to grow and, and want to make it as successful as possible and, 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 and help and positively impact as many people as I possibly can too. I think Ben and I can relate to that because like we have 18 sports on the SREF platform today. And if we go back four years we probably didn't know half of what we knew about these different sports today. And like, it is, it is an insight. It is an eye opener. And it's also fantastic because it shows you how refereeing is done in a completely different way. Mm. And actually there are things that you can pinch from other sports and, you know, move into, maybe you know, what you do yourself. So I can completely relate to those um different sports and it and it and they continue to grow right you know like i didn't know much about corfball uh, when when i started uh started yesref but i i think the game of corfball is fascinating it's a cross between basketball and uh netball and for any corfball enthusiast out there right now if i'm doing anything wrong i apologize profusely. <laughs> but we've got the uh it's a mixed game between four male and four female and it's that cross between basketball and netball and it's a team sport originating in um, the Netherlands, so fascinating. I mean, I love it. Just, uh, just learning more. So, well, I didn't even know what it was until you just said it. So you taught me something already. <laughs> so Nathan, we um, have a kind of final question that we're asking all our podcast guests. Yeah. So, if we could hand you a magic wand and you could do anything you wanted with it, yeah. what one aspect of refereeing or officiating would you like to change, and why? I think the one thing that I would like to change is I would like to change. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I feel I feel almost silly for saying this, but I would like to I would like to change the way that officials are sort of made to 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 stand out alone at the end of the game. I think they should be allowed to walk off the field and play with the players. Now I know that there's obviously a safety aspect to that, but what I think is the reason why you would change it. Is you, I think it sometimes puts uh, referees in an uncomfortable position when they have had contentious issues within a game. So I think, and I think it's largely unhelpful and unhealthy. However, I do appreciate. But what I've noticed is that in other sports, for example, cricket, 
you'll see the third umpire or whatever it might be standing on the pitch in the interval, uh, you know, lunch break, tea break, things like that in cricket. And so I know that it would mean probably maybe more officials would need to be appointed to all games and things like that. But could another official who hasn't actually been involved on the field stand at the end to make sure there's no misconduct and the referees walk off? I know it's a bit of a complicated change in magic one that I'm bringing and a bit niche, but I think the reason why I do it is from a not getting hounded and booed and called all the names under the sun perspective when a contentious decision is being made in a game. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. that I love that. That's why I love the question. Cause there's so many different things, but I think, yeah, that also at the end of a football game, for example, there'll always be a few generally be a few players that don't come and shake your hands because they're annoyed about, the game or whatever and I think if everyone could come together and stay together shake hands and walk off together it almost shows a bit of of unity around yeah it's okay that we don't agree with your decisions that's why you're here and it's a job that you that nobody really wants to do right um, but if we can all just kind of the game's finished now it's not going to change nothing is going to be any different now I've blown the final whistle can we all come together and walk off as a, a show of defiance that we're all here because we love the sport together I think that's really cool but I, it would also, as you say, be a, be a challenge because emotions are involved and jobs and all sorts of stuff. But a fascinating answer. I think that's really cool. Thank you. Thank Nathan, you. it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for giving up your time today. We've um, thoroughly enjoyed it. And as I said, could probably talk to you all afternoon on, the, on this topic. Yeah. It's, uh, it's been great. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Where can people find you, mate? Have a... 20 second plug of where we can get hold of you socials all that sort of stuff the third team.co.uk will will lead you to the website and really want people obviously to visit the website and when they're there try and sign up for the third team blog for their inboxes um it's a blog that we've done i've done i write it every friday or it's released every friday um there's over 200 on there now um you haven't yeah. missed a Friday yet, have you? I've not missed a Friday yet, no. Uh, first one was the 6th of September 2019. So four, over four years later, we're still going. Never missed a Friday. So I'm still keeping that going. I don't know how many consecutive weeks it is, but I know that it's over 200. And um, really, really urge people to do that. And of course, they can connect with the third team on uh, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and x or twitter or whatever it's called this week um, um please happy to, to have people reach out and, and and sort of send messages and see how we can help them because it's one of the one of the beauties of the job quality thanks for that mate thanks, thank you so much for your time today really appreciate it um, and we will see you very soon thank you